0: Hey folks welcome to another edition of footnotes bringing you news and views to help you become a more informed neighbor advocate and believer y'all today i sit down with first-time author ronald olivier who has written a book called 27 summers my journey to freedom forgiveness and redemption during my time in angola prison now angola prison is a notoriously violent prison which You know it's a reputation for prisons to be labeled notoriously violent, but this one is. It's in Louisiana, and Ronald Olivier spent 27 years incarcerated for a murder he did commit. So we'll talk about that, how he got to that point, how he processed it, made peace with it. And we'll also talk about his life on the inside, what he learned from it, what it was uh, like for folks who may not be familiar with the reality of incarceration. Now, if you've been following my work for any amount of time, you know that I've prioritized uh, talking about incarceration. It's a very inhumane dehumanizing system. And it's that way on purpose. It disproportionately incarcerates the poor and black and brown folks. And, um, I teach in prisons and I want to make sure that we on the outside understand what we are approving of, what we are letting happen to other human beings in our society. Uh, the U S incarcerates proportionally more people than any other nation in the world. and it has a lot to do with the history of, of race and policing in our country. So we get to talk to somebody who's lived through it. And, you know, one of the fun parts is Ronald is born and bred Louisiana. So he has this thick, rich, beautiful, melliflu- mellifluous uh, accent that I could listen to all day. And he has fascinating stories on top of it. So you're going to want to listen to him you know, on and on and on tell these just gripping accounts of his real life. But one of the things that stuck out to me in this conversation, in any conversation I have with people who have been incarcerated is the depth of their faith. So we all go through problems. We all go through struggles. Few of us have to deal with the reality of incarceration personally um, and and the way that, ha- that puts you in survival mode and the trauma after trauma that you endure in these prisons locked behind bars. And not only did Ronald come out with his faith intact, he came out with a stronger faith. And you'll hear him talk about that. And to me, it really ministered to me. It really was soul filling and it strengthened and encouraged me. And I think it'll have the same impact on you Uh, we have a really wide-ranging conversation and we start warming up from the jump as he talks about hearing about his uh, sentencing, his original sentencing to life without parole until a series of events, including Supreme Court cases, he was finally able to be released. And thankfully, he had the courage, the wisdom, um, and the willingness to write about his experience in this book, 27 Summers. Appreciate enjoy, learn from, and listen to my conversation with Ronald Olivier. Folks, here we are with Ronald Olivier with the French
1: pronunciation. Don't get it twisted. Welcome to the show, brother. (laughs) Yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very proud to be here, man. Very glad to be here. Uh,
0: it's, it's, It's fun to be talking to a Uh, native of Louisiana, I'm, I'm on this app, this phone app called Duolingo. And I'm learning the basics of French because it is such a language that is out there for me. I can't wrap my head around it. And the first time I really started digging into it is when I went to the west coast of Africa to a country called Benin, where they speak French. And so this is a bunch of black African folks speaking French. And I was like, I got to get up on this thing, man. I got to figure this out. <laughs> Do you speak any French at all? Or Creole? No, any like that? No, <laughs> no.
1: But, but my grandfather did a lot. Um, ah. He was very fluent in it. Um, my, my mother's um father. So you heard some... Growing oh, yeah, up. Yeah, especially when he get mad, he cuss you out in, in French. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and it probably still sounded pretty. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Wow. Well, brother, thank you so much for joining us. You are a first-time author, and the book is 27 Summers: My Journey to Freedom, Forgiveness, and Redemption during my time in Angola Prison. So let's just jump right in. I am curious about how you describe two life-changing moments. The first moment I would love for you to talk about when you first heard that you had been sentenced to life in prison without parole. And the second moment I would love for you to talk about is when you first heard that you would be released. Take us to those times.
1: Yes. um, I have to dive in right here because... All of this goes together. Um I'm I was basically on on trial for at 17 years old. I went to prison at 16 years old, but I'm on trial by 17 and I'm facing the death penalty. Um and it's while the jury is deliberating, um, man, um everything gets real to me. I feel the weight of what's happening. Every, all up until that point, it was a joke to me. I'm going home, but I felt the weight of it. While the jury is deliberating, it's about 12 a.m. in the morning, 1 a.m., I still remember the armed guard that he brought me to a holding tank while he was deliberating. I, I could still hear the door slam and the keys turn, and I could hear his footsteps fade away until I was all alone. And so the weight of everything just came down on me that 12 people who really didn't know anything about me was making a decision on whether I live or die. And it got real, real. And I also can hear um, my mother's voice What I believe God was using her voice. um, And what she told me years ago prior to that, she said, baby, if you ever in trouble that I can't get you out, you call on Jesus. Mm. And I got on my knees in that holding tank. And, man, and I, and I called out to God on, um, I was crying and I had one simple prayer. I made a deal with God. A lot of people say you don't make deals with God. I made a deal with him. And my prayer was very simple I said, Lord, if you don't allow them to kill me, I promise you, I'll serve you the rest of my life. Mm. And for the first time in my life, um, I experienced the peace of God. I didn't know what it was, but I know there was an a inward calmness, you know, that. And this inner resolve that said, man, you're going to be okay. And I felt okay. And so here it is. We go back, the jury comes. They come back with a guilty verdict of second-degree murder, which I didn't know that carried a mandatory life sentence mm. without benefits of parole or probation. In layman terms, that means you die in prison. And and so here it is. I'm hearing that. And... But I, I love to tell a story like this in that holding tank, man. Um, I received two life sentences. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the state was giving me a life sentence with no benefits, and God was giving me a life sentence with so many benefits. He encouraged mm. you in His Word to not forget them. <laughs> you know. Wow. And so, um. And so here it is um if when I heard um the guilty verdict and and found out about the life centers that I was receiving I was kind of it was part of me that was relieved that I wasn't dying but another part of me was like wow man spending the rest of my life and this can't be real I felt like I was dreaming you know and man that was like this can't be happening what a and mix, so, yeah. Yes, what a mix of yes. emotions—that
0: relief that you right. weren't going to
1: be killed, right? But right. okay, but I, but I can live. And so, in 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 the midst of that, um, man, there was a lot of hope there. Wow. Um, strangely, um, just recently, probably about a couple of months ago, my my stepmother um sent me a picture of a letter I I sent to her and my dad. Um, right after I got sentenced. And I'm reading this 17-year-old mind and all through the page. It was four pages. The first page was lost. I had the third, uh, the second, third, and the fourth page. And I'm reading it. And it amazed me that how much hope this little boy had wow. even <laughs> even in this situation. You know, I say things like, man, I'm not giving up on God. You know that somehow I'm going to make it out of this. You know. You know, I was like, "Whoa, okay." They must have thought you were delusional. <laughs> they were right. like, "Okay,
0: well, I'm glad for you, but um yeah. wow." So, what about this is now almost 30 years later, um yes, that you hear that you'll be released. Uh was right. that a a long lead up where you had heard maybe some hints of it? And then yeah. finally, it came, or it came out of the blue, kind of a thing.
1: And so, um, twenty twelve, um, the United States Supreme Court came down with a ruling that it was unconstitutional to give a juvenile a mandatory life sentence in Miller versus Alabama, and um, it said it violated our Eighth Amendment, which is cruel and unusual punishment, and that a juvenile should have some type of meaningful opportunity for freedom because they are more likely to be. Uh, rehabilitated than adults Because they're not fully developed It broke down the science of the brain Of the frontal lobe That's not fully matured. It's the part of the brain that helps you um, To appreciate risk and consequences And so that's why juveniles Do some crazy things Because that part is not developed And so um, That ruling really came down And so that made my sentence That I had at that time um Illegal it was unconstitutional, and so I filed um, a writ into the um, into the courts to correct the legal sentence. Got a lawyer, and we filed that. And so here it is: I'm going back and forth to court, and man, soon get parole eligibility, and then soon go on the parole board, and then soon release. Um, that came down in 2012, but I'm not released until 2018. Goodness gracious! Because the Louisiana, Louisiana, failed to adhere to the United States Supreme Court ruling, huh? Yes. You, oh, you think they're so not they, supposed to do that? Yeah. And so they, what they did was, man, it's it's amazing all the the games they were playing and and not wanting to release us. Um, the first thing they did was they came down, the, the Louisiana Supreme Court came down with a ruling that Miller versus Alabama wasn't retroactive, which mm. meant it didn't go from 2012 backwards. It went from 2012, that date of that ruling, forward. Mm. And so on. Um, so you wouldn't even be the, eligible under that. Right. Right. Yeah. And so which meant the the law didn't apply to me. It applied to people from 2012 forward, and I was like, man. And I knew it did because, you know, I had some sense of the law, and and coming up through prison, you know, did a lot of studying law, and, and I knew that Miller Miller was he was consolidated with a case of a guy named Jackson. He was on collateral review, which which back then it passed 2012, you know, and so he got released. And, oh. and that kind of that kind of um said that it was retroactive. Yeah, kind of set saying, the precedent, uh huh. Right, you know. And so um, I was like, man. So, but I was still hopeful. I, I just figured it was gonna take a little bit more time, and um, a lot of guys were disgruntled about it, and man, really heard about it because we had like at least what 200, 200 to three hundred guys who were juveniles oh. in the penitentiary. You yeah. know who that affected. And, um, man, it just amazingly, um, uh, because even lawyers was telling us, man, it's going to be probably five or six years before something else get in the Supreme Court to address that. Cause it's hard to get a case to the Supreme Court to, um, accept it. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's, it's a miracle when, when it's accepted, mm-hmm. <laughs> at least mm-hmm. on the r- ruling of it. And so, man, it wasn't what, um, months later, they accepted the case. Whoa. Concerning and retroactive is a friend of mine, George Toker and George's case was man. This was amazing what they did with his case because he had been, he had been down, I think 34 years for a crime. He didn't commit They had him for Goodness. killing his best friend. And I'm talking about family members confessed that man, if he would have killed his best friend, look, he would have killed himself. That's how they was inseparable. It wow. was really close there's no way he could have did this. And but he still got convicted of it, got a life sentence, and he's there. And so he'd been claiming actual innocence. And so they knew that. And so what the um DA do, when they find out his case accepted, they come at him with a deal and um offered him 21 years for manslaughter, which was the max during the time that he was incarcerated. And if he take this plea guilty to manslaughter, um, that he would get time credit served and leave out the prison, you know, but, or he could take that, his risk in the court, Right, but, right. But that would take that, that case out of the courts. If right. he did that, right. <laughs> you know, and so we back at square one again.
0: So he, you know, he, he decided to take the risk. Was that out of principle to make sure that this
1: case he didn't was take returned? the risk. Okay. <laughs> he didn't take the risk. He took the deal. He took the deal. <laughs> <laughs> he took the deal and went home. And as a part of my book, um, I, I talk about that, you know, because uh, he came to talk to me about it before he did it. I prayed with him and really told him, I said, man, do what's do in the best interest of you, man. Uh, don't worry about everybody else. You know, his mother was kind of sick, didn't know if he was going to make it home for her. I, I said, man, you got to do everybody. uh say what they gonna do, but they're not in your position. They don't feel uh-huh. the weight and the pressure with uh-huh. you. You're dealing with. It. I said, so do what you have to do. I say, man, listen, my life is not in your hands; it's in wow. God's hands. Wow, you know, and that's a lot he, of faith. <laughs> yeah, and and he took the deal. They retracted his case from the United States Supreme Court. He goes home. Everybody's angry with him. Everybody, all the juveniles want to kill him. You know. Like man, he sold out. Blah 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 blah. There, there it is again, man. It's not lawyers saying, man. It's definitely not gonna be about six or eight years before. And amazingly, another miracle take place. Um, I think it was about four or five months later they accepted another case. Oh my Um, God, Montgomery, um, United States Supreme Court um versus um Montgomery, and they ruled retroactivity, and it was in 2016. And man, amazingly, um, the process began, and guys are getting recenters. Then they come down with a law that you had to do at least twenty five years before you're eligible for parole. Okay. And so by that time, I had it done uh, about 26, 27 years, nearly. You know, that first initial
0: ruling came down in twenty twelve. Did you right. initiate a process at yes. or around that time?
1: Yes. Yes. And so I was okay. going back and forth to court. Wow. And, um, and was about to go home. They was going to drop my charge to manslaughter, getting the 21 years that was on the table. And the next time we went to court, they, they had to, they, it was told to them to put everything on hold because this, this case that was in the Louisiana Supreme Court regarding retroactivity and which they ruled on and said it wasn't retroactive.
0: Goodness gracious. In some ways, that seems like that's the worst of the worst, because prior to, you know, parole release wasn't even a possibility, so you didn't waste time really even thinking about it. But then this Supreme Court case comes in 2012, and you get all the way to the point of almost being released, and then the rug is yanked from under you. How did how did you deal with that? How did you feel and how did you deal with that?
1: Man, I was, I was extremely hopeful. My faith was very strong, man. I trust God. I knew my life was in his hands. It wasn't in the hands of the system and that man, he was in control and I knew, man, I was getting, I always had this inward resolve that I was not going to die in in prison. Mm. Uh, there were moments of when unbelief in a you know, would try to attach itself to me. You know, concerned of going home, but man, I had a habit of just running into His presence, running mm. to God. That was that was my 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 um instant response when I felt that I get in His presence, and um man, it it would lift that that stuff couldn't stay in the presence of God. Wow, you know, wow. um and, and 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 unbelief would dissipate, and my faith would be strengthened. You know. And he'll give me a word. That times I go back, man, Lord, just tell me again. And he'll show me a tell me again and give me a word and just reaffirm his word. And man, it just was a amazing journey of um this this building this relationship with God and this trust. You know? Whoa.
0: And so you didn't get bitter at that point. I mean, so 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 you experienced that, you know, emotion of of disappointment, mm-hmm. frustration, and and what have you, but then it sounds like you did what you always have been doing, which is take it to God, yes. And that's how you you know sustained and said, okay, regroup, and we'll right. we'll see what happens.
1: And so I couldn't explain um how I was gonna get home or when I was get was gonna get home, but I knew who was gonna get me home, wow. and so I just trusted the who. And the who took care of how in the how and the when. That's that's his business. Wow. <laughs> you know, and a lot of times we get caught up in trying to do it and and get in the way of God, but man, he got a plan. He's always up to something. <laughs> and and he always has it figured out, you know. And so I just learned to trust him, just to trust him, um, even when I didn't see his hand, I, I trusted his heart because I knew that. He wanted the best for me. He had the best at heart for me. So man, here is a God who who knows everything. The past, present, and the future. You know, he he's not subject to time like we are from one second to the next. Man, who would want to trust somebody like that? Wow. <laughs> and so this I didn't know so what good. tomorrow was gonna bring, but I knew the one who held tomorrow. And that's who I clung to. He knew what it was gonna bring. And man, it just there's some great things in me, man. I, Man, I woke up literally, man, uh, every day in prison, enjoying everyday life. As crazy wow. as that
0: sounds. That sounds beyond, <laughs> beyond, beyond. I cannot <laughs> <You know>? fathom.
1: <laughs> what? And it was because it, it had nothing to do with my geographical location. It had everything to do with who was in me. and um, And I had found a sense of purpose while i was in prison you know and i was helping people and that filled my heart with joy just to help people man. just to lay alongside of people you know who in a, i'm in the same situation with. they're trying to figure out man how you doing this how you smiling through this here yeah you know, come here let me tell you let me tell you let me tell you how you know man it's god man and I, my life has always pointed towards him you know um, man, it was hit. It was his strength. It was his wisdom. It, it was his knowledge that man that kept me in the midst of all of that, you know, pain and turmoil, man, he kept me, man, It kept my mind. You know, They have a lot of guys I know had lost their minds in in prison. You know, it's, Absolutely. it's, it's a very traumatic situation. You know, it's some trauma you go through. Because we're not designed to be locked up like animals. Right. Oh. And, um, I tell yes, you, I, I get
0: I get tingles listening to you because I know that even on a microphone and through a screen, I'm in the presence of somebody who's been in the presence of God. Yes, sir. Somebody who 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 truly believes. And we'll 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 get a little bit more into your faith story. I want to go into your background a little bit. Uh I yes. love this part. I mean, it's just very gripping where you write death or to be more specific, murder was all around when I was running wild death. Oh, yes. uh, and, and maybe some other version of life was taking place elsewhere in America where people had steady jobs and quiet streets and lived to grow old and gray. But that life wasn't ever going to be mine. That version of America uh-uh. was about as relevant to me as life on yeah. Mars. My reality yeah. was just the way the NWA described
1: it, wild, that's violent, and sure to be brief. So that's right. And so so that other life that you describe um that was happening in other neighborhoods, man, that was that was stuff you only saw on TV. That was fiction. <laughs> you know, the reality was what was going on in my neighborhood, um, and so I grew up in in New Orleans in a very poverty stricken area. Um, um, I can remember um, when we moved from out of the Seven Wall to the Eight Wall. New Orleans is divided into dip- different wards, and this is downtown area. And I can remember um, sitting on the porch in the Eight Wall feeding the birds. Um, but something happened in in the late in the mid late eighties. On um, was the crack em- epidemic. Mm-hmm. It totally destroyed our neighborhood. Yeah. And, and so what with, with drugs comes always um that follows on um, is is violence. And so, man, I can remember when that took place, even the birds start, stopped coming out. Ooh. I couldn't even find the birds to feed. Wow. Even they know to relocate. And man, it was it was just. It was just wild, man. It was a lot of murder, a lot of um, a lot of violence. I was accustomed to hearing police sirens and gunshots and, and just laying on the floor, ducking. You know, that was common. You know, he hit shots, hit the ground, hit the floor, and that 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 I was accustomed to that. You know, that was my norm. And so I can remember when I finally went by my dad in Florida. It was just just this real wholesome environment and quiet I was uncomfortable there you know it's like man it's too quiet in here police sirens and gunshots man this not this not normal here this and so I was uncomfortable with that and so I went back to New Orleans where I was comfortable with with the noise you know I came and so the abnormal became normal to me right you know wow. normal was abnormal to
0: me you so know. what was you know, most of us at, at, at that age and and growing up, we're thinking about video games, about girls or guys, about sports, about parents. We're not necessarily thinking about survival. What's, right. you know, what what's the life, what's the inner life of a child in that environment? I mean, hopes, dreams, aspirations, heroes. How is that different or affected by that? Honestly, it sounds Man. like chaos.
1: You you actually felt lucky. You was extremely, and we thought it was extremely lucky if you um, made it out your teens alive. Jeez. Um, so most of my friends, man, they died teenagers. You know, um, that was that was common. Um, and I really thought I was gonna. I, I never thought I'd make it out of my teens. Mm. Uh, and so, so and, then, what does you
0: like? What is what is your what is your vision board look like? And
1: so my, this, that's a great <laughs> question. My vision board is survival. Look, um, I know I'm gonna die in my teens. Look, some coming with me. I'm taking some with me. I'm wow. not going out by myself. So I'm carrying the gun everywhere. I know, and so I felt like, okay, this this high is supposed to be, because this high I always saw it. So this was common, you know. And so your mind. Gets accustomed to that, and so here it is, man. Um, <laughs> and and it's so it's so scary to the point where even when there's an escape route, and I can see God was trying to get me out in certain places, but in my mind, I thought I was trapped that I could never get out.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You
1: know, and so that's 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 how the enemy blinds our mind. To things because man man we 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 fight a real devil there's a real spiritual warfare going on you know that people are not aware of you know you just we just seeing the fruit of it and we talk about the fruit of it it never really deal yeah. with the root
0: would you describe that feeling even as a, a child and a team as a, a teen as a sense of hopelessness
1: oh yes definitely i and and absolutely no peace I mm. always woke up. Um, I always had nightmares. I wake up um, checking myself for gunshots. I always Whoa. dreamed I was getting shot up. Um, even years into, and when I when I went into prison, I still was having those nightmares. Wow! I wake up shot up and looking, man, and you know, heart racing, and you know, and so, man, I just just didn't have any sense of peace. Oof.
0: Well, and that led you down a particular path. You said violence yes, is all around you and you end up going to prison for for taking someone else's life. Can you Yes,
1: sir. talk about that? So here and so here it is. I get in an altercation with a guy, um me and my friends um jump him, beat him up and so the next time he sees us, we outnumber is like about 3 of us and it's about 6 or 7 of them. And he sees us, and so, and I guess he really didn't know because I always carried a gun. I'm, I'm wondering why he would even approach me like that. But he so they try to um get at us, and, and so I had a starter jacket on too. And so, during this time, man, starter jackets, man, everybody's getting robbed. I remember things. that, yeah. And, and you would think you know, the the wise thing is to do not the whim, <laughs> but. But in this little teenage of mine, okay, I'm wearing my starter jacket with somebody Would I'm going to carry a gun. I'm all myself. They're going to get it, you know. And so um, I felt they was going to take the starter jackets, too, at that point. Um, this is Christmas Day. I'm like, I'm not going to be robbed Christmas Day. No, this is not going to happen like this. And and so we, we actually tried to avoid them. One thing led to another. They followed us. And um, try to get on the bus to avoid them. Um, my, my um, the co-defendant on um, which was my best friend still is. Um, you read about him a lot in a book named Leaky. Um, he was like, "Man, come on, man, let's go, bro. It's Christmas Day, man, let's just leave this alone. Let's go." And I'm like, "Man, we just got out here. We ain't gotta, man. No, bro, let's go, bro. You know, I said, all right. So we try to get on the bus. They try to snatch me off of the bus." I reach up, I turn around, I had a gun already in my hand, waiting on him, and I just let it loose. Um, I kind of felt like one of them was reaching for something, um, probably wasn't, but in my mind, you know, at that time, um, and and um, there you have, you got two two young men, young black men, man, and, and two pools of blood, um, one of them survived, the other one doesn't, and man, Two days yet late, I find myself incarcerated for murder um, in the juvenile bureau. Cause I was a juvenile; I was sixteen years old. And the guy who survived, I think he was eighteen, but the, the actual victim who passed, he was fourteen years old. And and so here it is; I'm in a juvenile. And so I've I've been there quite a few times for some of the simple things. There for simple robbery. At Robert Battery, I think. And uh, my mother come sign me out, or I get a, a daughter, or something come sign me out. But um, uh, and so I was expecting that this time. Um, and I found out, man, my mama couldn't sign me out of that one. And so there it is, I find myself going back and forth to juvenile court, and they make a decision to charge me as an adult. You know, I'm first facing juvenile life, which it was to the age of 21, you get out. But now they charge me as an adult and I'm rebooked, sent sent to the um, adult prison and they rebooked me for first degree murder. And now I'm facing the death penalty. Well,
0: for a 16 year old brain to try to comprehend that, I can't imagine. And when you made that transition from a juvenile detention center to an adult prison, what were your first impressions?
1: So a lot of guys who was in the juvenile um, um detention center um was they was like very hopeful, like, man, you have a better chance fighting it in adult court than here, you know. And so again, the idea is I'm very hopeful, you know. Um this won't last long. Everything was, you know, fun and games to me, you know. Uh, and to be in locked up for murder, that's like a a badge of honor for the streets, you know. As as sick as that is, as that sounds. And so here it is. Look, man. Okay, I'm going to the um, adult prison. You know? And man, um, I was I was very I was always had a short temper and I would respond to anything um, in violence and and did a lot of fighting. You know, um, and so it was. It was. It was very difficult to intimidate me. You know, and I feel like yeah. you know, a,
0: a a young teenager, sixteen years old, going on seventeen, in an adult prison. <laughs> I feel like I'd be very easy to intimidate because you face yeah. some grown grown men at right. that point. And so,
1: but and so my my mindset, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make somebody out of example, whoever it is, and they don't wow. get it because the mindset is that the, the older the adults preyed upon the young, sure you know, they will rape them, you know, and I was like, man, this, <laughs> it'll never happen to me. I would mm. not be, raped. I would not be anyone's girlfriend. So, and I had that, that, that kind of persona about me, you know, and, and I always looked the guy in the, in the eyes when I talked to him, I never, put my head down, you know, because I knew that was like fear and and they preyed upon fear. Mm. You know. And they'll say, do things to see how you will respond. And it was a lot of things like that. Um and so you you had to you had to be very quick and and very be very abrasive, you know. And um but here it is, um I find myself after all of that, I'm I'm in prison I'm going to Angola notorious yeah and so they are, they were known to be the bloodiest prison in the nation Goodness and gracious. man and there's a sense of fear there going there I'm like okay this this is this real, real. It's, 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 <laughs> well that's <laughs> you know? that's like my
0: next question is most mm-hmm. of us get our impressions of policing and the criminal legal system and certainly prisons from television, from movies, right. from the news. So what are some things that that people get wrong about life on the inside or or some common, maybe even frustrating misunderstandings that people have about prisons and the people in them?
1: I think the most frustrating misunderstanding is um that these are these are human beings. You know, they just, they didn't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to be a criminal. Or, I'm going to do this. You know, they, they're connected to parents. They're connected to families, you know, and they're real human beings. And, and most of them have, you know, just made some bad decisions. Most of them just grew up in a wrong environment, you know, and, and found themselves in that. And, you know, um, all of that is designed, the ghetto and the system and just for a lot of young black, brown men to be in it, you know. And so here it is, and it pit us against each other to make the, make us think that we had to kill each other. But um I think that's the most misconception there, you know. And they got a lot of guys who who, who are there um that I would never want to be my neighbors on the street. <laughs> know, sure. I don't I wouldn't want them in my neighborhood. Yeah. But that's far few in between But the the um media and the system will make you think that's everybody.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's that's everybody. Man, I man I get to Angola, um I never forget on my way on the bus. I'm making these decisions in my mind. Oh, okay, um again, I'm not going to be anyone's girlfriend. I'm I'm going through this this gate a man and I'll, I'm gonna leave a man whether mm-hmm. walking or in a box. Mm-hmm. So they send me home dead in a box. I'm gonna leave a man, and so I made that decision on the wig. And also, I'm thinking, man, I'm gonna have to again. I'm gonna have to make somebody an example to let them know that <laughs> I'm not playing because I was I was young. By this time, I'm 18. I don't have a string of hair in my face. I'm five eleven, 131 pounds. Wow. Okay. You know, I look like I look like I'm 11 years old. Mm. Just got just got a target on you. Hadn't even grown a mustache yet. Yeah. And I know I'm just a little pretty little boy, you know, look, cute little boy. Yeah. I'm very conscious of this. And and so I I walked around with a chip on my shoulder and I'm checking everything. Man, what's going on? What you mean by that? You know, hold up, little. Ain't nothing. You know. Well, let me know, man. You need to be clear when you're talking about such and such. Such. You know. So, I'm hitting everything on the head. You know, because then I start to see that they preyed upon the weak guys. If they came in timid and guys who were who couldn't make eye contact, always had their head down by itself. Oh man, that was that was like blood to them. You know, that's where they was going. <sighs>
0: hmm. you
1: know and so, so you um, determine
0: you're going to be the the opposite of that as far away from that so they know not to mess with you right wow and
1: um and so here it is. but amazingly you know I I used to think nobody ever messed with me or challenged me in that way because I was so bad and so abrasive blah 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 but when I look back on it man listen God was protecting me Amen. Say that. He Listen, he had his hands on me, around me. And man, I end up around around some men who was willing to help me and not hurt me. Men who was mentored. Man, I met some of the best men of God, man. The pastors in Mm. prison. Mm. Some Mm. of the most intelligent men. Man, I had a a brother who I befriend. This guy, man. One of the most smartest guys I knew, he spoke five different languages, you know, um, fluently and can teach him, <laughs> you know. That's amazing. I'm yeah. talking about knew, knew how to program, computer. He just was, man, his brain was like, man. And so, and so that's the type of people I hung around that, that was going to stretch me, you know. So you're in this very violent, brutal,
0: you know, mm-hmm. s- survival is still... a a priority here. You also write, you know, uh, that it, it was Jesus who stepped in and saved your life. So Mm -hmm. I'm wondering then in that environment where you have to sort of portray yourself a certain type of way as a, as a, Mm -hmm. as a, as an individual who's willing not only to resort to violence, but make an example of people, how are you processing this situation that you're in, this context that you're in through the lens of faith? And does that alter the way you move and maneuver in that
1: context? And so here it is. I, I believe um, in that holding tank, um, when the jury was delivered, man, I was born again. God did something in my life. But it it didn't actually look like I was born again until about two and a half years later. <laughs> you know, I was still walking the same way. I still was talking the same way. It still yeah. had a foul mouth. And so on. Um, it's just like a, it's just like a newborn baby, you know. a Newborn baby doesn't come out the womb, um, looking like the little gurgle baby. Oh, it's, and we lie, talk about oh, it's so cute. It, you know, they look messed up coming out. They <laughs> like they look like what they've been through. Mm-hmm. And so, a baby, a newborn baby, has to go through a process of being clean, being changed, being fed being clothed, and so it's totally dependent upon someone else. And so, um, even though I was born again, I think the only evidence that was there um, was that even though I was doing some of the same things and talking the same way, the evidence was I wasn't comfortable with it anymore. Mm. I was was being convicted, you know. At one time, this was okay. This is not okay. I'm getting checked. I'm feeling Hold up but but didn't know anything about it, and so when I get around these guys who begin to disciple me, you know and begin to begin to um teach me about how important it is to get in the word and renew your mind and how your mind need to be updated on to what happened in your spirit and and how important it is to get in the word and read it and how important it is to develop a prayer life and how important it is to fellowship with other believers and and man um and so as i began to do that things started to change um my desires began to change mm. um it wasn't that i just stopped using profanity man i was totally delivered from it i i i didn't i didn't have a desire to say those things anymore in fact i hated to hear them now <laughs> you know and so and so man, um, God went to really just changing me and I would have gone through that process. It's it's and it's a process, and, and that helped me to be um patient with young believers because wow. it don't just happen like that for them. And yeah. so you'd think, man, nothing happened. They're just doing the same thing, or they playing church and this and that. But there's a process. That's there's a cleaning that process that has to go on to they able to walk on their own. Just That's like a great in a,
0: perspective yeah and a great analogy. What I'm gathering, so my question is what your devotional like looks like on the inside where maybe you don't have as much access to stuff as you do on the outside. What I right. hear is reading the Bible, prayer, fellowship with other believers. is that true and were there other things that you felt like helped help you grow in your faith
1: while you were incarcerated? I think that's the main thing is because I was still doing and living some of the same ways, but I still was going to church. And a lot of people was like, man, you playing church, man. When I go, man, uh, when I go to church, I got to get ready and all this here, you know, and it gives you the mindset that you have to be a certain way to go to church. And when a brother showed me this um, and helped me with this, because I used to feel bad about going, oh, I ain't going to church tonight because I did that. Oh, I ain't. And he went to show him, he said, man, um," he said, what if you broke your arm? He said, "Um, would you wait until your arm is well to go to the hospital? Mm. He said, no, I'm going to get some treatment. He said, man, that's all the church is. It's a spiritual treatment center. It's a spiritual hospital. You don't go there um, when you're well. You go there to get well. Wow. That's why why you're going there. And so that helped me to, to stay in that process no matter what I was doing. And, man, the more I did it and the more developed my prayer life. And another thing was that that really helped is who I hung with, the people I was around. Right, right. The right. Bible talks about this here. Um, I think it's 2 Corinthians 15, 33. It says, "Um, God is not mocked. It says, evil communication corrupts a good spirit. So you can... You could have a real good hosting spirit and just get around the wrong people, you know, consistently and it'll corrupt you. You'll become like them. And so I changed my friends. I changed who I was hanging with. You know, I, I started hanging with people um who was pastors. I want I was hanging with the pastors. That's who I got friends with, you know. And so it it that helped to develop me, you know. I was around um, some real good people. Um, And you actually just begin to grow. You actually attended seminary. Yes.
0: On the inside.
1: And so that led me to. um, And so here it is, these guys who develop and seeing some leadership principle, a leadership, a leader in me and these gifts. And trying to push me in this direction and that direction. So in 1995, they established a um, seminary there, the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. They had an extension center there um, where um, professors would come from the outside and, you know, lecture you, exam you just like you did in, in a college. Yeah. You know, and you was able to earn up until a bachelor's degree after four years of college. and. Man, I got into Bible college in 1999 and 2000 and 2005, I graduated wow. with a bachelor's degree in Christian ministry. Wow. And so it, it, it was, man, an awesome experience because it gave me tools in ministry, you know, and, and how to minister. You know, it's, it's one thing to know how to fix a car, but if you don't have tools, <laughs> You can't yeah, fix it. yeah. You, know, you have to have the right tools, and I that's think that's good. what the Bible cause did for me, man. It gave me so many tools to help people, you know. Because God had to change my life, I was then in ministry, and I wanted to help people effectively, man. Wow, that's amazing.
0: Um, let me ask you a theological question, uh, because. We'll talk a little bit briefly about your 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 life now on the outside and what you've been mm-hmm. up to. One of those things is being a chaplain, and when you're dealing with folks who may have been, you know, unjustly imprisoned, they're innocent of a crime, or maybe they did commit a a a, a crime or a wrongdoing, but now they're experiencing more wrongdoing, more victimization, more injustice, even on the inside. When they talk about suffering, when they talk about unjust suffering in the context of faith, how do you encourage them? In other words, you know, when they're asking why all these bad things can happen and God is a loving God, how do you respond?
1: Mm-hmm. Man, I think and and I have actually experienced that. And I had a lot of friends, especially in prison, who I knew was innocent, you know, and I was like, man, I can I, I can really sit in. And be kind of, I don't want to say comfortable with being there, but but knowing that I was there for killing someone. I killed someone. I actually did it. And here it is. You are here. You didn't do it. You know, but one of the things, one of the scriptures I, I go to is, um, I think it's Romans 828, man. For we know all things work together for the good. Of them who love the Lord and you know call according to his purpose. And I say, man, no matter what your life is and how it looks, whether you're guilty or not, man, God can can work with it. You know, he, he can, it, he's amazingly where, well, man, he can work all that together for the good, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, no matter how ugly it is, you know, and, and he's the answer to it. And so having a relationship with him, I say, man, that's what this is about. Because, man, for there's a fact that one day all of us are gonna die. No matter where you at, <laughs> whether you're free or out there, you know, you're gonna die. But there's this thing called eternity, where you would spend it at. That's a that's your choice there. No matter how the system has handled you no matter how wrongfully you've been um handled in the system you have a choice where you spend eternity at and i said and and that's where i like to start with a man in trying to get them to have a relationship with god cuz once you get that relationship with god man you can go through and do anything anywhere and he'll get you through it <laughs> you know? and and you can testify
0: that's that's hey, that's yes. that's experience speaking so <laughs> I love your motto. You said, don't tell me what God can't do. Um, yes, sir. yes sir. So so preach to us. Um, how does that apply for folks in prisons, but also beyond? Um, don't tell me what God can't do,
1: man, no matter where we at, somebody is in some type of prison. You know, whether you're you free or actually in prison, there's some type of prison. Somebody might be in a financial prison, you know, in poverty. Poverty is a prison. Yes, sir. You know, somebody might be, um, you know, in a in a health prison, you know, with the, the, the health is failing them. You know, um, they're sick. You know, they could be dying. You know, that's that's a prison there. And the thing is, um no matter where you are, man, God can reach you where you are. He he's always knocking at the door. The question is, would you answer and right. let him in? You know? And and I think that that defines everything, man. If you can develop this relationship with God, which is most important than anything else in the world, you know. Man, he can lead you where you need to go. He, is, he has a purpose and a plan for you. If you are breeding, you have a purpose in the plan that God is up to something in your life. And you got to get with him. You know, um, I'm reminded of, um, of a story of um, a guy in the 1800s, um, early 1900s, who he had first bought one of the T-Mile Ford's. And he he's driving around the dirt road. You know, on a T model four, and and it broke down on him. He pulls over, he gets out, he's under the hood, don't know anything what he's doing, but trying to get it to start. It stopped, and the sun is going down. And after about two, three hours of that trying to get it started, there's another guy with T model four pull up in front of him. Say, man, what's going on? He said, man, I've been here. I'm I'm trying to work on this, trying to get it started. He says, um. You mind if I look at it? He said, man, go ahead, please, please. He said, gets under the hood, and after a couple of minutes, he said, go ahead, crank it up. And the guy cranks the car up. He like, man, how do you do that, Bob? Man, what's going on? And the guy extends his hand. He said, man, how you doing? My name is Henry Ford. <laughs> Creator. <laughs> he, so he created the car yeah <laughs> he know exactly where to go. and so mankind without God is broken down on that road. We're trying to fix it ourselves. We're on our own hood. and God's saying, man, look, could I look on it let me let let me help you out. <laughs> you know yes. that's where he's at let, let me help you out. And so what we'll take, man, years and decades of trying to no avail He takes in no time. Because He created us, He know exactly how to fix us. We broken without Him, mm, and mm. I think, man, that's where um, that's where everything lies at in our relationship with God, man. And I encourage anybody, man, to to trust Him, man. He, he He's trustworthy. Like, don't beautiful. tell me what God can't do.
0: And we just got another beautiful (laughs) sermon illustration out of that. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So you got out, what, 2018, 2019. What are you up to now?
1: 2018. Um, November 30th, um I got out. And so November 30th just passed me. Five years I've been home. Congratulations. So I, I celebrated my freedom bursary. Yes,
0: that's, I like that. Um, freedom bursary. And, so
1: awesome. and so after five years, um, you're able to um in Louisiana restore your vote. So I just got registered. To vote. I can't wait to get in the boat. Whoa. You know, just got my, my card yesterday, came in the mail for me to register. And so that's That's amazing. That's amazing. Milestone. And so when I get out of prison, oh, man. It's just a my life is a series of miracles, miracles after miracles. Before I can recover from one, here come another splash. It's like waves. And so God gets me out of prison. I have a great job. I've, I've been home five years and I've never been without a job. I've always mm. been employed somewhere. Yeah, know, always. I I've turned down jobs. Jobs found me. Wow. I'm telling you, this I can't make this up. Don't tell <laughs> me know? what God can't do. <laughs> <laughs> and so man, here it is. Um, I was working when I first get home. I worked for the town of Simsport. Um. The mayor there gave me a job, a close friend of mine. He was a chaplain when I went on a missionary journey in prison. He was the chaplain at the other prison who I assisted and I pastor the church there. And me and him got um, very close and did a lot of great things there. And he ended up retiring from there and becoming the mayor of his town. Um, sports still is. And... um. Gave me a job working with the town. Gave me a place to stay. I had a three-bedroom house, two bathrooms, Okay, okay. A okay. Box, um, <laughs> nice kitchen, man. A back porch, front porch. Had two pines in the back where I could go fishing.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: Listen, man. <laughs> this, listen. All that for free.
0: My goodness. You
1: understand what I'm saying? Somehow,
0: a, somehow I think you good in the kitchen too. i I might have to invite <laughs> myself over. <laughs>
1: that that's that's my wife gift there. But you okay. come on over. <laughs> that's not, I can do a little something, but uh, her. Uh, <laughs> she the one. But man, um so God man began to do that in my life. I became um in no time I became the supervisor over the natural gas. Of the town and that's amazing how that happened but later man um as i'm going on i'm very thankful just during the pandemic you know people losing jobs i still have a job i'm, I'm like man lord i'm grateful and i never forget i told my wife I said man um i said i, I really i don't want to, i don't want to sound ungrateful I'm very grateful for my job that you know and i believe is a it was god who gave it to me i said but I'm getting kind of uncomfortable now because I know God hasn't called me to be the gas man. Wow. And I said, I got a great desire to be in ministry full time. Wow. The next week I get a call. The next week. Man, I, I can't make this stuff up, man. I'll <laughs> tell you what God can't do. <laughs> I get a call from the former ward of Angola, Beryl Kane, who's now the commissioner of um, corrections of of Mississippi departments of corrections. He's the commissioner. He's over all the prisons in Mississippi. So he calls me to be the director of chaplaincy at the Mississippi State Penitentiary in Portsmouth, Mississippi. I'm, I'm like, familiar. Man, you got to be kidding me! And wow. so, and um, we end up packing up, Whoa. going there. Living there in Parchment and, man, menacing to those guys there. Um, We probably overlapped
0: because I was um, a teaching assistant in uh, when I was doing my Ph.D. in history. I was a teaching assistant and we went and taught. uh, I taught for three semesters in Mississippi State Penitentiary. Really? Yeah, that was probably 20... 2018, 2019. Yeah, okay.
1: around there. Yeah. I, I, I went there 2020, August of okay. 2020.
0: Okay. Very good. On yeah. the
1: hills, you know, they just had a riot. They had this big riot there. Went in the hills on there, and man, God did some some great things. I um, stayed there three and a half years. And um, in April of this year, we just made a transition to Baton Rouge. I'm now working for the um, Louisiana Parole Project. We help guys who um, who have done over two decades in prison um, make the transition from prison to home. We give them wraparound wow. services. We got houses for them. We got clothing, food. We help them get all their documents, their IDs, their driver license, um, everything to, just to get them a real great start and help them to get jobs. And, um, man, um, we have helped is the Parole Project Has been in existence since 2016, and we have a little bit over 500 clients that we have helped. And we have listen to this. This is awesome. We have a less than 2% recidivism rate. That is
0: amazing. Less than 2%.
1: Less than 2%. So that translated into layman terms on man, if you come, if a person comes through our our um our program our reentry program they are more than likely not to ever go back into prison mm. because they get a real great start and man um it's 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 awesome um so I get to go back into prison and interview guys um so I'm, I just was um November the thirtieth I just happened to have to go into um and and go to interview some guys, you know, and that was the day I discharged. <laughs> wow. You, know, you so celebrated like, your freedom bursary by
0: going back and serving man. those. Man. Yeah, man. wow. That was, that was
1: amazing. I'm telling you, I couldn't make this up. Don't tell me what God can't do, man. <laughs> I hear your next
0: book title here. I hear it. I hear it. Uh let me get it on that. Uh definitely. Yeah. Um, I always like to end with the the practical. Uh I listeners to this podcast and those who follow my work know that um, interactions with the criminal legal system and particularly incarceration. It's a passion of mine to to help raise awareness about the realities there and about what people can do to help and support. Um, After all you've been through, all your experience, all your knowledge of the system. What are some practical ways that myself and listeners to this podcast can support those incarcerated or transitioning out, or or whatever the the is there an organization or an institution or or a, a, an endeavor or project that you recommend?
1: Uh, well, one um, is where we work, the Louisiana Parole Project. Man, um, it's a nonprofit organization. You can look it up online. And and help with that and, and donate to that. Because we, we help a lot of guys um get on their feet. I think a, another great thing is um it's just just being there for someone incarcerated, especially um African Americans, all of us know somebody that's in prison. <laughs> we know somebody that knows somebody that's Unfortunately in prison.
0: Fortunately so, yes. Such a you large know, system, yeah. Yeah, and it's
1: in every family and, and supporting that person man it helps to go visit them mm-hmm. it helps to um to accept their calls and it it helps to write them you know that helps them to be connected to the outside world mm-hmm. you know it's the way they don't feel like man they're dead there's a lot of guys feel like man man this is next to death you know because you yeah. start to lose a lot of family as time goes on they, they begin wow. to um disappear you know you don't get as many visits as you do in the beginning, many letters, and that dwindles out, you know. And especially churches who's into prison ministry, who goes in there, um, man, that's a great help um, because that and and then they got they have this program where where um, churches adopt people that's in prison, you know. Mm-hmm. They, they write them, they're there for them, and they're and which which is even greater, they're there for them when they discharge. Yes, you know. You know? To help them um through the process, being there for them, man. And man, that's that's so very important. Um, because so many, so many churches reject people. Could you believe that? They reject people that's coming from prison. And a lot of churches don't even which is which which pains me, a lot of black churches don't even have prison ministries. Mm. And I'm sure their members have people that's in prison.
0: Mm. Yeah. You know? So the, some of the most affected congregations and communities don't actually have sort of proactive okay. services to minister to families you know? or the incarcerated. That's huge. Well, Brother Ronald, I, I could talk to you all day, obviously, and you've got stories for, for decades. Um, yes, sir. But is there a way we can follow your work? Are you online or anything like that?
1: Yes, I'm on Facebook as Ron Olivier. You spell it O-L-I-V-I-E-R. That's two I's, not Oliver. (laughs) (laughs) The French. Yes, I got it. I got it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. um, um, I'm also on Instagram as Ronnie Slim 75. Ronnie Ronnie Slim Slim 75.
0: 75. And we'll have all that in the show notes. Brother, thank you so much for being so vulnerable, so authentic, sharing your story in this book, 27 Summers. 27 Summers. Thank you so much for holding that. What a great (laughs) picture. Look at you. Look at you. Looking (laughs) good. So that's available wherever books are sold. And we appreciate you. Uh, I'll be following you and your ministry.
1: God bless. Thank you for your time. Thank you, man. Bless you.